Welcome to Reviving Growth Keynesianism, a podcast about economic thought from the mid-20th century and why it matters to us today. Our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality, growth, and aggregate demand, so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well-being for all. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduka, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're pleased to welcome on a new co-host. Chris, do you want to say a few words about yourself? My name is Chris Hong. I'm a PhD student at the University of Chicago Department of History, and I'm an intern at the Center for Spatial Data Science. In this episode, we'll be talking to Matt Klein, an economics commentator at Barron's, about his new book with Michael Pettis, titled Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. So I guess to start off, we have to ask you about your title, which is maybe the easiest entree point into your book. Just to start off, you know, what is what are trade wars and what are class wars um, in your mind? I mean, what, what are the sort of uh, the theoretical specifics of those things? Sure. So we picked that title for a couple of reasons. One is that we thought it was actually the clearest, shortest explanation of our overall thesis. And also we thought it would kind of pop and particularly uh, with trade wars being really in the agenda, especially when we started writing the book, we thought this would be relevant. And so the way to understand what we meant by that is that economic conflicts between are often thought of as being between countries and that governments are essentially waging those economic conflicts for the benefit of the people who live uh, under their jurisdictions. But that is not really the right way of thinking about it, that actually these economic conflicts are really driven by internal domestic conflicts between economic classes, oftentimes where classes across countries are cooperating with each other against other classes in their same countries. And so we're trying to sort of reframe the debate and saying, instead of US versus China, you know, Chinese workers are taking advantage of American workers, that actually the better way to think about it is that for their own internal reasons, elites in China have chosen to embrace a bunch of policies that often are beneficial to elites in the United States to harm workers in China and as sort of a side effect consequence of this also harm regular people in the United States. And so when you think about it from that perspective, it really sort of inverts the sort of standard narrative of what trade wars are. And that's why we aim for that title. Oh, that makes sense. Um, just to flesh things out a little bit, could you talk about some of the um, imbalances that have grown in the inter- international economy over the last you know few decades and, and how those are related to the internal dynamics? Sure. So Basically, there are two ways of looking at this. One is sort of the real economy side of things, which essentially is you have some people or some societies where they're producing a lot more goods and services than they're capable of using domestically, and therefore those have to be sent somewhere else. You know, the flip side of that, of course, being societies that are producing less than they use domestically, either because they're essentially over-consuming or, as is in the case in the United States, they're underproducing. And then those also have sort of corresponding financial consequences as well, which generally speaking means debt. So on the one hand, the, the places that are essentially the net importers, particularly the United States, but also the other Anglosphere countries like the UK, Canada, Australia, et cetera, end up incurring large amounts of debt. Uh, whether it's household debt or government debt sort of depends on specific business debt, uh, depends on the specifics. And then the flip side of that is that in the surplus economies, you have these large accumulation of foreign assets. And, you know, again, it's not like there's a winner or a loser here. You can frame it in all sorts of different ways. One of the points that we make in the book is actually, if you look at uh, Germany, for example, the returns that German savers have gotten on their foreign assets have been extraordinarily low. In fact, but from some perspectives, it was actually deeply negative. And so clearly this isn't something that's better for them. They could have bought essentially any good or service and probably would have been better off. So it's not as if you know Germany or, or China or what have you are winning by accumulating foreign assets and Americans are losing. But it does. it's a sign of an imbalance. And I mean, one of the things I think is really useful for thinking about it is that a lot of what happened in the crises of sort of 2007, 8, 9, the euro crisis after that, it was really all a function of these debts, these unsustainable debts that had accumulated that had this, you know, foreign dimension to it. And then, you know, how people unwound them. You coined this new phrase, which I think is just perfect um, because, I mean, the whole book really is just like such a masterwork of like clear economic writing that doesn't also dumb it down. Um, Speaking as like an economic historian, that's really hard to do. (laughs) So so kudos to that. But um, you coined this phrase, which is really useful, which is uh, the exorbitant burden. And that's sort of the pair to the exorbitant privilege. So, you know, you often hear people talk about the way that the American dollar 
gives us certain privileges in the international system. We don't have to defend exchange rates. We get to make trade in our own currency. Um, we can borrow a lot. But there's been this exorbitant burden that's gone along with it. It's not borne by the financial elites, but it is borne by the majority of Americans. Right? And that's, I guess, in your view, the savings that are being pushed into America? So first of all, credit where credit is due. That phrase, exorbitant burden, was coined by my co-author, Michael Pettis. Um, I don't know exactly when. It was a while, sometime within the past 10 years, I think. But that was that was his, you know, among many contributions to the book, but that was definitely his, something he, he, a phrase he'd come up with. And, and for context, the exorbitant privilege phrase that was something invented by uh, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, um, who was a French, uh, I believe, finance minister at the time in the, I guess it was the early 1960s, I think it was, or late 1950s. And the context then is actually a lot different than what it became. And then the issue was that the U.S., that Americans were able to acquire European assets at essentially low prices because the dollar was relatively overvalued. And um, so the U.S. Was, was running trade surpluses the entire time, but the, the, the sort of financial outflows of American savers exceeded that. And that was made up for by Europeans buying essentially zero yielding dollar reserves and Americans buying assets on the cheap. And that's what the exorbitant privilege originally was. Over time, the phrase acquired a very different meaning, as, as you said, which is that you know, Americans supposedly can just print as much as, as they want to borrow and, and spend and, and get as much imports without having to worry about the consequences. The counterpoint of this, of course, is that, you know, why are is the borrowing and spending, you know, occurring? If if it's occurring essentially to substitute for a lost income, insufficient production to meet sort of a sustained standard of living, that's not necessarily a good thing. And in fact, that's that's one of the big points that we make. That if you look at the trend of uh real consumption per person in the United States over time. And actually it is remarkably stable for a very long period of time, basically from the end of World War II all the way until either the late 1990s, or you can have a slightly different trend line until 2006. It's not that different. The period when we had this massive housing and household debt bubble, people talk about this consumption boom and everyone going crazy. If you actually look at that period, the growth in consumption per person was actually slower than, than it was in sort of the longer term you know, sustainable trend of the 60s and 70s and so forth, 50s. And so it wasn't as if there was a sort of massive boom in the United States. Similarly, over that period, yes, there was a large housing bubble. There's a lot of excess construction, but there was also a massive business investment bust. And so overall investment in the United States was not growing particularly rapidly. And anything, it was growing quite slowly compared to what it had been um, over the past several decades on average. So you know, there wasn't, if there wasn't this massive boom and bubble and, you know, people living large, why was there so much debt? And and the answer seems to be that the decline in employment and production and income and all those things was just even more severe. And debt was used essentially to patch that over. And you can see that very clearly if you look at, there was a study the Federal Reserve Bank of New York did a couple of years ago where they looked at the parts of the United States that had, that other economists identified essentially losing out the most from low wage import competition. And essentially what they found was that those were among the places where household debt increased the most. And so you can see a very clear link there. And when we say, well, what does that have to do with the dollar? Essentially, because the United States financial system is so open and the legal system is relatively, you know, the private legal system is, is very reliable and everything's conducted in English, which everyone in the rest of the world knows, it's very easy for basically anyone in the rest of the world who wants to save money or, or stash away wealth or whatever to put it in the United States. And that has an impact on the value of the dollar and has an impact on U.S. domestic credit conditions. So on the one hand, it makes the dollar more expensive than it otherwise would be. And so that's going to mean that American companies that want to sell to Americans are going to have a much harder time than they otherwise would compared to people based in foreign countries. So import penetration will go up. And then at the same time, American companies that would sell to the rest of the world would also have a much harder time because, you know, from an exporter perspective, your prices are going to be much higher. And again, that's that's something we saw pretty clearly. And, you know, there's a there's a line we didn't use in the book, but I, I remember interviewing someone for you know my day job who used to be in charge of the uh, international section of the Fed. And he said the dollar has generally ranged between either vastly overvalued or slightly overvalued. And so that has a persistent effect. And that's essentially what we mean by the exorbitant burden. And that, you know, again, if you're in the business of selling financial assets or, or for that matter, real estate to foreigners, you don't see a problem here. If you're not in that line of work, then it actually does make you worse off. And that's the vast majority of Americans when we think about those on a relative basis. I thought it was really neat how you guys yeah. provided a, uh, 
a really simple diagnostic of like where all of or like how to how to tell what this money means, which is if America really was going on this consumption binge or this investment binge, then you would presumably see demand for credit going up and therefore, you know, interest rates rising. But it's been the opposite. We've seen interest rates fall persistently for 30 or 40 years uh, since Volcker. So it's pretty clear that this is savings pushing their way in and eating up all of our safe assets, which then has sort of knocked down institutional effects on our financial structure, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the comparison is you can look at sort of the classic emerging market crises countries of like, that's where you actually see people desperate to pull money in. And what you see generally is interest rates are rising, the currency is going to fall in inflation just in terms, other assets will fall. I mean, this is sort of basic finance theory, which is that if you want people to buy your stuff and they're not willing to, then you have to increase the expected return. And the way you do that is generally through lower asset prices, higher yields, all that stuff. And that's the opposite of what you saw in the United States. It's the opposite also of what you saw, by the way, in other countries that you know experienced this at various points in time. So in the period before the euro crisis exploded, you know, you look at, say, Spanish assets or, or Irish or Greek or any of those things, you had the very similar phenomenon, which is clearly that money was coming in, you know, being pushed rather than being pulled. Sorry, what was your second question? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no. So, I mean, so, I mean, I think that gets to it is that like, so these savings are pushing their way in and that lowers our interest rates and that sort of helps financialize the economy. Um, it eats up all of our safe assets. And so there needs to be, um, you know, it, excess savings need to find some kind of um, additional asset to, to, to go into. And so the American financial sector responds by, you know, just puffing itself up like a giant blowfish. And then I guess the, the flip side of that, though, is that as everyone's pushing their way into the dollar, that pushes up the value of the dollar and makes all of our exports less competitive. So this contributes to deindustrialization. So financialization and deindustrialization are really two sides of the same coin, and they're coming from all of this excess savings in the rest of the world. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And in fact, they, they have to go together in a certain sense, because you know, you're thinking about the question of you know, how are you able to continue to afford buying imports from the rest of the world, which in turn generates income for the people in the rest of the world that is then recycled into US assets. I mean, those have to, you know, it has to be the case that if that income is happening, if those transactions are occurring, then there has to be debt being created to, you know, to, to, to finance those purchases. Because otherwise, you know, there wouldn't be the, the transactions on the trade side, there wouldn't be able to, you know, generate the income that then is recycled. So this, those have to be simultaneous things. And yeah, it's absolutely right that a question of which drives which is you know thing that people ask a lot. But again, if the, if you can see that there's sort of these large sort of nonprofit seeking um, investors that just want to buy U.S. assets for whatever reason, and then the supply of U.S. assets is going to eventually you know the price is going to adjust to varying degrees if interest rates go down, you know multiples go up, things like that. But also the supply is going to adjust, and that's what you know we saw. I mean, you saw it in the in the late 1990s and with you know equity issuance, and then you saw it in the 2000s with debt issuance, like the private label mortgage market, just ballooning um, to a lesser extent. You saw it also with like the agencies, you know, the, the GSEs, uh, Fannie and Freddie, their debt issuance increasing a lot in securitizations. But I mean, that's essentially, you know, the, the financial sector is very good at responding to changes in demand from end purchases of things. And they might do that in a way that essentially is creating garbage and in, in being very creative or fraudulent in, in creating assets that will ostensibly meet the demand. But like if the demand is there, they will come up with doing things. And that's essentially what happened with, you know, the US subprime market. I mean, you essentially went and found everyone who could possibly, you know, a pulse or whatever, most lenient terms. You could see this in the changes in down payment requirements. Uh, John Ginocopoulos did a great piece looking at this. And I mean, essentially you, you got to the point where someone could just put down nothing by, you know, borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a house. But you can't go past that. And so once you sort of exhaust every possible supply of you know, potential borrower, then you sort of hit the top and then this whole self-reinforcing process reverses, which is what happened. And that's why house prices, you know, sort of plateaued and then went down. And that's why, you know. So there was a, there was a financial frontier that, uh, that we then hit and the end of the frontier sort of had ripple back effects on the rest of the financial system. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, you could argue, I think, plausibly that if some other entity had, you know, suddenly increased its borrowing sort of offset that, you might have prevented the kind of crisis that we had. I don't think it was sort of inevitable that, you know, we all had to be a lot poor and tons of people had to lose their jobs. You could have had a different outcome in that respect. But I think that insofar as the mechanism was, let's rely on housing debt. I mean, there there was a wall that, that was hit. And you've seen this in many other countries. This is not sort of a uniquely US phenomenon. And people who 
ascribe it sort of to the peculiarities of the U.S. mortgage market or securitization. I think really missed the point there that this happened all over the world with very different systems because there was a sort of broader issue of lots of demand for assets um, when there wasn't enough issuance of them. Yes. Speaking of other parts of the world, you briefly mentioned the role of excess savings in the euro crisis. And I guess it would be a good time to pivot to um, one of the other countries that your three case studies sort of comprise, which is Germany. And I guess with Germany, the sort of lay impression that many people have of the German economy is that it's very technologically advanced, very productively efficient, and maybe on the German savings front, very financially prudent. But your, your view in the book is, is it departs from that a little bit. And I think that the key sort of historical moment is really the Hartz labor reforms, which I think on your view revealed that maybe the German economy is more of a, a sort of paper tiger than, than it sort of presents itself as. So I was wondering if you could maybe expand upon the role that Germany plays in your story. Yes, yeah, so the German story is really interesting for a few reasons. And, and one is that it really, I think, is useful for busting the myth of why countries have trade surpluses. Because as you said, the standard explanation is they have trade surpluses because they're more productive and the people are more thrifty. And, you know, I'm not going to say Germans aren't productive. And I mean, I, you know, I have a meal vacuum and it works very well. But I mean, that's not why Germany has a trade surplus. I mean, if you look, you, know, you can take a very long stretch of time basically up really up until about you know 2001 2002 the german trade balance in, you know either for unified germany or west germany individually moved in a relatively narrow range relative to the size of the german economy sort of like between sort of negative 2 to plus 2% of gdp for decades and then you get to the 2000s and it goes up to plus 8% and it stays there which is unprecedented. And so the question is, you know, did Germany suddenly become much more productive over this time? Did people suddenly become much more thrifty? And, you know, that's not what happened. We actually can, you know, identify pretty clearly. And, and one of the ways it makes this easy to see is that the change in the German trade position actually had nothing to do with exports. That export growth in Germany actually slowed down a lot in the 2000s and was slower through, ever since 2000 um, than it was before. And that's not because German businesses got worse than anything. It's mostly because German businesses, you know, to the extent that they sold abroad, their export growth is a function of sort of global GDP growth and global GDP growth was slower after 2000. So it's not, it's not a knock against them. That's just what happened. But then the question is, why did their trade surplus expand? And it's because German import growth slowed down much more than that. And that's a function of the fact, you know, again, you might say, oh, well, maybe, you know, Germans suddenly got a lot better at producing things they wanted at home. And so they don't need as much. That's not what happened either. I mean, German import growth just grew basically in line with German you know, domestic demand, whether it's consumption or investment, and German domestic demand slowed down a lot. And that's really the only explanation you need. It's very simple, like that's what happened. And so then the question is, well, why? And I mean, there's a lot of you know, specific points we make in the book in terms of the history really going back. I did a talk about this not that long ago with a German-focused audience. They said, like, we should have taken it back to the 1970s. I said, well, you know, <laughs> uh, I, you could have done that, I guess. But, you know, most people, when we talk about this, they say, why did you go back to 1989? But so we went back to 1989. And you can you sort of point to the, there's a lot of events that occurred there, both the German reunification and the broader end of communism in Eastern Europe and the institutional changes and the re reaction among businesses and, and workers and politicians in, in West Germany to that, that really culminated in, as you said, with the, the Hartz Hearts fear reforms of the early 2000s, which essentially the view was that the only way German companies and German economy could survive is if they just tried to slash wages as much as they could so that people could still be working. And maybe that is it's sort of, a, you can narrowly see that as being you know successful, but the problem is that A, it lowered German living standards a great deal, and B, it had this sort of cascading effect, whereas you know, it becomes self-fulfilling. Everyone does this, then everyone has to keep doing it and, and everyone is worse off. You know, there's an alternative where you don't do that and um, everyone is better off. I mean, it's not as if Germany was worried about you know, massive price inflation or anything. It was the opposite. You had very high unemployment. To the extent that they did add jobs as a consequence of pushing people off of welfare, it was basically people who, you know, they, they gotten pushed out of their job at like 57 years old or something. They were taking unemployment benefits until they could get state pension. And then, you know, they lost that option. So now they're cleaning tables I mean, that's the vast majority of where the job growth came from, whether it's part-time employment and it's mostly people sort of at the cusp of retirement age. And then people wonder, like, why did Germany not have a productivity growth? Why is German, you know, living standards why rising so slowly? I mean, you have a, you know, another statistic that, that um, they publish is, you know, the percentage of people with a job who live in poverty. And that increased dramatically 
and has stayed elevated. I mean, it's, it's not as high as it was in 2006 or whatever, but I mean, it's still higher than it was, you know, before the, the, the changes in, in 2005. So, you know, I, th- I think that people saying Germany is a model, I don't think it's really the right way of looking at it. And in fact, when you see what happened as Germany exported this model, sort of the, uh, there's a term that the magazine Der Spiegel used, they call it um, pedagogical imperialism, which I thought was just fantastic, <laughs> where they talk oh. <laughs> about the way the, the Germans <laughs> treated the rest of Europe after the crisis. And I mean, it just, they, they spread those same pathologies everywhere else. You saw income and wealth inequality increase dramatically in the periphery. You saw, you know, labor protections fall, you know, all the same thing. I mean, they, they followed the German model, domestic demand collapsed. And to the extent that the trade balance shifted in places such as Spain or wherever, it was purely or almost entirely a function of the fact that domestic demand was so much weaker. I mean, there are a couple of small cases where exports really did rise. I mean, Portugal, most notably, because they got this big shift in tourism. But that's that's basically it. I mean, that's not it wasn't there wasn't some like secret German miracle of how to you know improve your economy. It was just basically if you just crush domestic demand and hope you can find someone somewhere else in the rest of the world who's still willing to buy your stuff. You know, you can have your positive financial position, but you know why? Yeah, I think that's sort of a nice encapsulation of part of your argument, which is that you know you have these reforms that keep down wages in the service supposedly of being competitive, but all that essentially does is it means that income inequality goes up, uh, living standards stay low. That means that demand can't grow, which means that you know you you end up in a positive financial position if you can find people to sell to, but you're you're making the whole imbalance worse um, for the globe as a whole. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a situation. I mean, if you want to sort of zoom out a little bit, I mean, the big problem globally has been that there's not enough demand for goods and services relative to the capability of the world to produce those things. And so to the extent that you have anything sort of approximating global, whether you want to call it full employment or full resource utilization or whatever term, you know, balance, um, it ends up coming from the fact that you have certain parts of the world essentially overspending or at least borrowing a lot of money um, in order to sustain a standard of living. And then because you're seeing in large parts of the world, this suppression, deliberate suppression um, of consumption and investment, that, that, that's what holds down demand. And so, you know, the German example is a very good example of, of how, I mean, it's not like they think about this in the context of, oh, well, there's this global problem and we're going to make it worse. That's obviously not, I mean, that's sort of the key part of our book is that a lot of this stuff is purely done for domestic reasons. But because you know everyone's connected, whether we like it or not, those domestic choices will have an impact on people in the rest of the world. And so, you know, what's useful, I think, is just to have um, you know some explanation and a model like why that is the case, and so people can see, oh, you know, it's not just we're doing our welfare reform because we want to make sure that you know our taxes aren't too high or whatever. It's like that has a whole bunch of you know follow-on consequences for people all over the world that you might not even think about. And, you know, it's important to use and, and very useful, I think, to think of the world as a global system and to see those connections. And that's what we tried to do. I guess so. in that spirit, I'm curious to get your your view on, this is, I think, focused on policies for the United States. So in, in our podcast and our project, we talk a lot about like Keynesian economics and the importance of aggregate demand for employment and economic growth, and particularly the way that income inequality um, is related to aggregate demand, where higher inequality keeps demand lower because rich people save more than poor people do. And so one of the things that we often propose or talk a lot about uh, would be for the United States, like can if we can reshape our income distribution such that it's more equal or more egalitarian, that would have positive effects in terms of employment and in terms of economic growth. And I'm curious, because in, in the book, you talk a lot about the importance of, of other countries, specifically surplus ones like Germany and China, doing these sorts of reforms. But do you think that because of the way that all the different countries are connected and because of the role that the United States plays, would that actually mean that these sorts of Keynesian economic policies domestically might not work as well here? Or is it still something we should be pursuing? Well, I think they'd work. And I mean, in fact, we do say that, you know, it's something that's worth addressing from the perspective of the U.S. I mean, the, the sort of wrinkle is that there would be a cost associated with that. And that is that you'd have to have, you know, probably even a larger current account deficit than you did before. And that means probably more debt issuance as a consequence. So um, the reason why we say, I mean, it's, you know, the U.S. should do these things anyway for our own sake, but there is sort of a danger there. And, and, you know, other countries should as well, right? I mean, like there are plenty of countries that have these issues. I mean, the U.K. is another great example. But, you know, that will not, to the extent that global imbalances are a concern, to the extent that these sort of cross-border debt um, issues are a concern, that's an issue. Now, you could argue, I think, 
plausibly that at least in the case of sort of the US and the UK, that if foreigners are just buying houses or buying government bonds, there are ways of dealing with that that are going, you can relatively protect your domestic economy from. But, you know, the extent that A, it's still going to be enabling people in the rest of the world to sort of persecute or, or whatever they're um, suppress the, the wages and consumption of, of people elsewhere. I mean, that doesn't really solve the underlying issue. So yes, you could do that. But I mean, you know, to the extent that there are these sort of needlessly low living standards in much of Europe and for that matter, large parts of East Asia as well, then, you know, that's not really going to solve the issue. So I guess my, my question going off of that then is, so, I mean, I, I know that you're sort of opposed to, uh, the Trump trade war as sort of hopelessly naive about the the source of our trade deficit and imbalances. But I mean, could, could we read this book as a kind of alternative agenda for the Trump trade war, you know, so that instead of like demanding that the CCP buy more Iowa corn, why not demand that uh, she da da fix the hoopoe system or something like that. So that Trump becomes a kind of like the tribune of the global proletariat or something like this. Yeah. I mean, that would, I mean, in theory, yes. If, if, if you had U.S. policy that was very much focused on raising the labor share of income in, you know, China and, and Europe, and, and changing fiscal policy in Europe as well, like that would have very positive benefits ultimately for the United States. I don't necessarily see that as I don't really see that as a trade war though issue. Insofar as I mean, our whole point is that this is something that's good for everyone. I mean, it's good for them. It's sort of good for. I mean, to the extent that it's good for the U.S., which I believe it would be, it would be essentially a side effect. But the real reason is to do it for their own own purposes. I mean, that's that's I think the um, the fundamental. I mean, like that's you know to end the trade, you don't have to have a trade war. Basically, like there's sort of as I said, there's a global problem of just you know as you would say, indefinite demand. We just need to raise demand globally, and you know then there'll be more stuff for everyone, and then everyone will be better off, and we can have higher living standards. That will also resolve trade conflicts if the places that raise the demand the most are the ones that suppress it the most right now. But, you know, that's sort of a side effect. Right. I guess I'm just I'm just thinking about. So I, I, in the introduction to your book, you say there are two real problems. One is the intellectual problem and one is the political problem. And I think, you know, the, your book just like absolutely nails the intellectual problem. I mean, like the structure of the global economy, it's clear, it's transparent. This is exactly what's going on. So then. Then the question is, okay, so what do we do about it? I mean, so there are these policies, you know, like um, preventing foreigners from buying American houses or something like this, that reasonably seem like they would sort of solve some of our issues. But then the question is, what what's the actual, who are the political actors in whose interests these are actually going to sort of be pushed onto the international stage? And if the story is that Chinese and German sh- savings are pushing their way into America, then either, you know, the, the solution is either your America drops out of the global system, which I think you're opposed to, and we would be as well, or just puts up with it and like h- hopes that someday China and Germany will will rebalance, um, in which case America kind of seems impotent. No, you could put it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that I don't think a I don't think the U.S. has the ability alone to really drive the kinds of changes that we think would be optimal. You know, the extent that the problems you know, especially, well, in any of these countries, right? But I mean, even in Europe, which is a, you know, a democracy or, you know, a collection of democracies, what have you, you know, it doesn't seem as if American pressure would really be constructive or helpful. And again, you know, they have their own reasons why they should want to do this. The challenge is that, you know, it's a domestic, I mean, even if you convince everyone in the United States of our argument, if you don't convince people elsewhere, then it will have limited persuasive power, or you'll just end up with a solution, as as you said, of the U.S. either sort of cutting itself off or just finding ways of putting up with it to varying degrees. But, you know, when we talk about you have to have domestic political change, I mean, I think that if there were really a sea change in the way the Europeans think about these things, for example, that would be really good for them. And that would, I think, solve a lot of the issues that we're concerned about. China is a really tricky case because, you know, as, as my co-author, Michael Pettis, he's been living in China for 20 years, follows stuff very closely. I mean, they've been talking about the stuff in China at the highest levels of the leadership there since like 2007, at least. And yet you haven't seen a meaningful change in, I mean, you've seen some changes. I don't want to say that nothing has happened, but they've been relatively small and the impact they've had on sort of China's overall imbalances has not been large enough to really shift things. So, you know, if that's the case, I mean, maybe nothing will ever change. I mean, this is a point we, you know, we make in the book that they're, they're clearly very powerful elements within China that like things the way they are, just as they're powerful elements everywhere in the world that like things the way they are to varying degrees. And so, 
you know, I don't know how you can necessarily see a, a shift there. I mean, that's sort of the pessimistic take, right? Is it right. like, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it, it yeah. seems like elites around the world are united around this dollar system. Chinese exporters, German corporations, and American financiers all profit from and are very comfortable with this uh, drive to the bottom for competitiveness, this financialization of America. So they have a sort of international political awareness, but then sort of the working classes are sort of trapped in their own nation states in terms of like what they can do for each other. But I, I don't know. I, I think your book does provide a way out in terms of thinking about like what a left foreign policy would be, like why it would be good for American workers to try to pressure Xi Jinping to raise the, the Chinese wage rate, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there are things that, I mean, but it would just be essentially pressure. That's the point. I mean, it would be sort of a rhetorical gambit. I mean, maybe that would be helpful, but you know, that's essentially what you're looking It's not as if you can actually just change things yourself. You'd have to sort of rely on your ability. And this is where it gets tricky. I mean, again, I mean, I like to think, you know, the optimistic side of me is that there are plenty of opportunities for change and you can point to things that have happened recently. You know, Europe's common borrowing, you know, the recovery resolution fund or what have you. I mean, that could be, you know, encouraging sign. At the same time, you know, I remember, and I, and I, I mean, I wasn't involved in this personally, but I know people who were involved in like the Obama administration during the Euro crisis. And, you know, they had plenty of constructive suggestions that were completely ignored. And in fact, not just ignored, but, you know, actively being rejected by the, you know, the people who were, you know, meant to benefit from them. So this was a period when ostensibly, you know, you would think naively, oh, you know, surely if, if someone were going to get along with Europeans, it would be the you know, Urbane, Cosmopolitan, Obama, and, and his people, you know, trying to help, you know, it's good for you guys too to do this. And, you know, they couldn't care less. So, you know, that's the pessimistic take. I mean, maybe, sure. so I think that ultimately, if it's going to change, it's going to have to come from within. I don't think American pressure, you know, for better or for worse, is really going to have the impact that we would want it to have. I see. So I guess building off of that pessimistic take, just just uh, for, for a little bit longer, you know, I'm struck by the fact that that war appears twice in the title of your book. Um, class wars and trade wars. Um, and then in the course of the narrative, military wars seem to be like real, real precipitating events for things that happened. So, you know, the, the revolutionary wars for credit cycles, the um, Franco-Prussian war for that credit cycle, which was just an amazing uh, case study. But it also seems to be the case that wars and the, the building of a, a warfare state, sort of hothouse developmental states, which uh, are what lead to this uh, high wage model that has high demand. You know, again, like following the pessimistic take, you know, is it the case that, um, I don't know, that, that some kind of geopolitical competition is necessary to force domestic change? I mean, Hayek says this and, and uh, uh, Hirschman says this as well, right? Is that like, we live in a pluralistic society. Everybody has their own ideas of what the good life is. Everyone has their own idea of what the public good is. But when it comes to wartime, it's very clear what the public good is, which is you have to win, you have to survive. Um, life is the necessary prior to the good life. And once you have that sort of commanding goal, that like summum bonum at the top, you can properly order the rest of every other public good. And so this is what comes out of, for example, World War II, right, is the massive developmental state that, that FDR tried to build in the 30s and sort of really got off the ground in the 40s. But if that's true, then like, you know, some of, some of these breaking points aren't going to come for a very long time um, until things get much worse. And, and, you know, this goes to your point about like invoking Hobson as, as your key theorist, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Uh, you know, to, to be clear, Hobson was writing at the very beginning of the 20th century and essentially saying that to the extent that they're you know, imperial, I mean, he was essentially arguing that imperialism was bad. And among the reasons why it was bad was that essentially it was, it was forcing the major imperial powers of Europe to compete with each other for market share to offset the domestic problems they had in their income distribution, which should sound familiar, you know, sounds like what we've been talking about just now. And, you know, it's, I think it's fair to question whether World War I was caused by that imperialist competition. I'm not sure. I mean, people have been debating about the origins of World War One for a long time. I'm not sure that would be my sort of, you know, top five explanations. But it is fair to say that then World War One happened, mm -hmm. and then the world that Hobson described was sh changed quite dramatically. But nevertheless, the dynamic in many ways reappeared. So in the 1920s, you still had a situation where you had very large economic powers 
that were producing way more than they were consuming domestically because the income distribution led to underconsumption. It was just that in that world, it was the United States. And then the Europeans were the ones who were taking out a lot of debt to sustain consumption and a few others, but I mean, predominantly Europeans. And that ended up collapsing in the Great Depression. You know, again, did the Great Depression lead to World War II? I mean, there are a lot of things that cause that. I'm not going to say that, you know, I don't want to be an economic determinist here, but I think it's reasonable to think it was a contributing factor in terms of at least undermining, you know, social stability in a lot of countries and encouraging the rise of, you know, various national chauvinists and so forth. So I think it's fair to put it in as a precipitating factor. You look at the world more recently, you know, we haven't seen things like that, thankfully, but, you know, there has clearly been plenty of political consequences of, you know, 2008 and the sort of failure to really rebound from, I mean, in many ways, things went better than they did in the thirties, which is very good, but nevertheless, you know, you have seen sort of this corrosion of public trust and so forth. And the coronavirus in some ways is kind of interesting example here because that's not a war against another state, but it also clearly is leading to some pretty open sky thinking about, you know, maybe how should the government respond to it? I mean, Someone made this joke on, on Twitter, which is that we sort of accidentally figured out we don't need to have recessions ever again because we can just give people money as soon as things happen. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't think that lesson's been fully internalized, but, you know, it's it's there. Um, and so, it, I mean, you know, maybe things will be different as a consequence. You know, I mentioned the European Common Borrowing Fund. I mean, that's a, that would almost certainly have never happened if it hadn't been with the coronavirus. So maybe that's kind of the catalyst we could look to that doesn't involve actually countries having to go to war with each other, which would be nice because you know wars are incredibly destructive but i mean it's a it's a fair point that changes the instinct of is not to have big changes without extreme amount of violence you have to something really kind of upset the situation people are willing to take that risk unfortunately that's just sort of how the world works so so then i guess the model is like uh, the mont pelerin society where you just sort of incubate ideas until the crisis comes and then the ideas that are on the shelf uh takes off klein and pettis and says aha here's the solution Maybe, maybe. Although, you know, it's a, that's a really interesting one because, I mean, this is sort of a point. The China example is really interesting because, you know, there's an element to which, you know, Michael and I might disagree on this a little bit, but I know one one point that, that he's made, which I think is compelling, is that from, you know, Xi's personal perspective, the recommendations they make are actually pretty good because essentially you can wipe out the power of everyone immediately below you and, like, fix your economic imbalances. I think that sort of there's another way of looking at this. And so from his, you know, he's written in the past about how she's centralization might be actually constructive. I mean, I'm, I don't know what he thinks about this exactly now. He's as far as I know, written anything explicitly, but I mean, that's something, you know, a couple of years ago, the counter argument, which is not specific to she per se, is just sort of a more general issue is that if you have sort of this communist party elite class that, you know, as various parts of the commanding heights of the economy in China, they are not going to want to surrender that position. And I don't know how you get to a situation where they would surrender any part of it voluntarily. And, you know, that creates all sorts of interesting implications there. And so, you know, so far, they've done a very good job of avoiding the big kinds of useful reforms. And in fact, one thing we've seen in the response to the coronavirus is that actually a lot of the imbalances in China have seen have gotten worse, really not better. So it's sort of the opposite of what you're seeing in, in you know, sort of Europe and the US. So I don't know, I mean, I remember being asked about this, I guess it was back in May, when the, when the book first came out, I actually remember being asked like, oh, maybe maybe China will do kind of good things and certainly would be nice. I mean, you know, in response to 2008, for example, China, in, you know, created some sort of rudimentary universal healthcare system. It's not what most people would think of as a universal healthcare system. You know, if you go to China and you get sick, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that, but you know, it was definitely a change relative to what the situation was before. And so you could, you could see that as like a positive development. We so far have not seen anything like that this time around. In fact, what we've seen generally speaking is that, um, support for households and household consumption has been quite limited. You've seen a fair amount of support for businesses and you've seen a fair amount of support for local governments to do sort of the traditional real estate development deals they've done in the past. And unsurprisingly, what we've seen in the data is that manufacturing production and fixed asset investment have overwhelmingly led the recovery that that household consumption has been quite weak. And also the Chinese trade surplus has hit in, in dollar terms, I mean, basically record highs. Not because, by the way, exports have done phenomenally well. I mean, they've done, they've held up, unlike the rest of the world, but really because imports have been suppressed while exports have, you know, so that's the, you know, the imbalance there. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be nice to say, like, Xi Jinping pulls us off the shelf, say, oh, yeah, maybe now we'll do all the things that are sort of been antithetical to our model of regime control. But I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say no. I mean, obviously, that'd be a superior outcome. But, you know, my personal view is I think that, like, Europe is probably the place where there's the most fertile ground. But, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I guess 
to just to push push on this line of thought a little bit further, would it be fair to say that crises or moment like world wars they kind of act almost as like a reset button for these imbal these imbalances that have been building up due to domestic policies that bolster inequality and and things. And then I I wonder what. I guess the exception to this would almost be 19th century U.S., where Anglo-Dutch savings flowed into the U.S. and financed massive investment. But the U.S. in itself, you can argue, is a kind of black swan case where they were expanding territorially across, you know, a continental landmass. So I guess the the question I have in the back of my mind is, what factors really enable for positive sum, non-beggar thy neighbor types of global trade? Is it does it only happen after these moment, these catastrophic moments of massive, you know, destruction of national capital stocks, or is it, or are there other, yeah, or because Nick mentioned the Montparlant, like I'm sure there are ideological sort of background conditions that govern how policymakers think, but I, I, I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit more about maybe social, economic, other sort of, you know, background conditions that structure the global economy in a way that either can push in the way of you know positive sum growth or um, in, in darker moments, you know, the zero-sum policy, mercant mercantilist policies that we see today? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, first of all, I don't think that global trade is inherently harmful in any way. In fact, I don't even think what we think of, what we call global imbalances are inherently bad either. I mean, you mentioned the example of the U.S. in the 19th century, which is sort of, I think, the paradigmatic case of a society that was able to develop and industrialize with the help of foreign you can call it foreign savings because there was financial flow and also foreign production because there was a net import flow. But the U.S. is not unique in that regard. I mean, it's sort of the biggest, most successful example, but there are plenty of other societies that have done this over time. I and mean, one of my favorite ones, part because it goes against a lot of, I think, stereotypes people have now, um, is South Korea. All right, South Korea has been and continues to be an export powerhouse. And for the past 20 plus years, it also has had very large trade surpluses. But until the Asian financial crisis of 1997-1998, South Korea consistently had trade deficits. In fact, those trade deficits were often very, very large. That's perfectly consistent, right? You can have export-led growth in the sense that you're selling more to the rest of the world and having pressure for your companies to modernize and compete in global markets, but also import more than you export because you need more resources to develop your society than you can produce domestically, right? The alternative to that is you're trying to be you know, completely self-sufficient. And there are a handful of societies that have tried to do this in the modern era. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that they've all led to mass starvation. So you have the Soviet Union under Stalin in the 1930s, where the goal was to have, you know, essentially no reliance whatsoever on foreign capital, both for ideological reasons and also, you know, national security reasons, and also the fact that like other people weren't necessarily willing to participate in this to varying degrees. I mean, there probably could have been a deal done, but also fundamentally just didn't want to be involved with, you know, foreign capitalists. And so what they essentially did was they basically took as much grain as they could from the peasantry and you know, some people to force labor camps to get metals and stuff. A lot of people starved to death, but then they were able to trade that barter, mostly with Nazi Germany, ironically enough, um, for sort of the high-end machine tools and things like that that they could then you know, use to build up their industrial base. And sort of in a narrow sense, it was successful insofar as the Soviet Union did become an industrial power by the 1940s and were able, you know, had the means to you know, create a war machine. Um, they were still dependent on imports from you know, the U.S. with, you know, because of Lend-Lease and so forth. But I mean, that, you know, that sort of narrowly worked. But again, tens of millions of people starved to death. Um, and then you look at China under Mao during the Great Leap Forward, which is essentially trying to copy that, but even faster. And it didn't work at all for them. I mean, the, the idea was, oh, we can increase agricultural productivity by doing, you know, planting things in a particular way. You know, Marxist science says so. And then because we've increased agricultural productivity this way, we don't need farmers, nearly as many people working the fields, we'll have them, you know, build dams or whatever. And also we don't need people, you know, using their metal tools for, you know, cooking. So we'll have them melt them down for steel. And then unsurprisingly, you know, the productivity gains they were banking on didn't happen. And then this led to, you know, massive food waste and destruction. So the alternatives to not do that, you can have trade, you can have finance, and then everyone can win, right? If you invest in an economy that's growing, you as a, you know, financial participant, you're going to, you can expect a positive return. You can either either lending or equity or what have you. I mean, uh, there are plenty of societies that have done this. The U.S. is, again, most famous, but South Korea did it. So that's a good model. Um, you do see plenty of flows to emerging markets. I mean, one thing that's interesting with, if you look at Europe's surpluses and sort of within the past 10 years, a lot of it did go to EMs, maybe too much of it. But I mean, there is a the role for, you know, these 
some places having surpluses, some places having deficits. It's not inherently bad. It's just a, the question is, you know, how do you get there? And certainly rebuilding after natural disasters or, or wars is one way to do it. Countries that have emerged from totalitarian regimes, there's a lot of potential. There. I mean, you look at Central Eastern Europe, right, is a great example. Probably one of the most effective examples of societies where their productivity and investments were lower than they should have been. And then, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, there's sort of this recalibration and that's facilitated by these large cross-border foreign investments that then raise living standards. And that's good. The interesting question in China, why did it not work out that way? I mean, you did have on the one hand, a lot of foreign investment coming in, but it wasn't on a net basis. And so you could argue again, that was sort of for ideological reasons or worried about, you know, fin- you know, I think the Asian financial crisis, quite frankly, had a big impact there. You know, that's, that's sort of the trick. I think that's where, you know, you know, in the West, you could say like maybe the IMF and there are better ways of running things. So people don't feel that fear, but there are a lot of forces at play. Yeah. And I guess it's just returning to the theme again, like, I mean, the, it was the park dictatorship, the military dictatorship that allowed that South Korean developmental state to really take off. Um, so I guess just returning to the question of like war, <laughs> actual, like re- physical war is like such a, such a, a key part of this whole story. Um, and then like, I don't know, I guess Chris, Chris's question made me think about the fact that like both America and Britain were pursuing the high wage model and not the high savings model. So it seems like, I mean, could you summarize it by saying that like when imbalances are the result of the high wage model, they're good. And when they're high savings model, bad, or is that too simplistic? I think, yeah, I think that if you were to simplify, I think that's right. I mean, also, I mean, to be fair, it's very hard to draw sort of a bright line between high savings and high wages. I mean, you can, a lot of places used elements of both um, or different points in time sort of went between one or the other. I mean, there are certain cases, I mean, one case where it's very clear sort of savings for, like I said, like the Soviet Union under Stalin, very clear. There were not any, I mean, that's, incidentally, if you if you look at sort of household consumption as a share of GDP in China now, it's extraordinarily low, basically unprecedentedly low outside of, you know, weird corporate tax havens where the numbers are fake right. and uh, sort of oil countries when the oil price is high and they're sort of saving for a rainy day. Outside of that, the only time you see a lot of large economy with, with household consumption that low was Stalin Soviet Union. Um, and that's essentially where you have a situation where basically you have, you know, you call it the low wage model. You're basically going to squeeze ordinary households as much as possible to generate some kind of surplus that can then be used to develop, you know, heavy industry and things like that. Most other places use some sort of a mix, right? So you can look at Japan having pioneered a more humane version of this, where you did have sort of persistent transfers from households to, to businesses, but, you know, it wasn't squeezing households so much that, you know, the living standards were falling, um, Not certainly weren't starving. I mean, the, you know, household living standards went up a lot in Japan. I mean, even, you know, China for that matter. I mean, it, it, things were arguably could have been a lot better in China, but households nevertheless did experience real living standard increases. I mean, I, I do think it's fair to say that in a world where some countries are trying to maintain full employment through raising domestic demand, domestic wages, and other countries are trying to maintain full employment through export surpluses. You know, that obviously is going to lead to big imbalances. And also it's going to lead to persistent shortages of demand because the countries that are doing the demand stimulus are going to be sort of not completely limited, but definitely more constrained in their ability to raise demand offset than the people on the other side of things who are going to use trade surpluses because there's no theoretical limit for them. In fact, they could just respond to any you know increase in demand in the rest of the world by just purely through more export surpluses and not increasing their own domestic demand at all. And so, you know, that that's where you get imbalances from and, and potential international frictions from. Keeping the sort of like grand sweep of history frame that we've we've been talking about for the last little bit, one of the things that was striking to me about part of the argument that you make in terms of the like overall historical changes over time is you basically say that starting essentially in the like 70s or 80s, the the global economy essentially solved scarcity. And it's like there's no longer actually a hard limit on production um, in the way that there had been for all of human history up until that point. Um, this is, of course, echoing predictions that Keynes himself made um, famously in the in the 20s and 30s. Um, and so I'm, I guess I'm curious, like, so and you have you know, data to back this up, I think maybe looking at like interest rates and that sort of thing. Um, but is that really the case that we we've essentially do have enough to produce everything the entire globe could possibly want? And in, in that case, it's it's essentially just a political question now for us of like, how do we, you know, make sure that that capacity is used to give everybody a decent life? Or is there more complications to it? That's a great question. I mean, yeah, we, that is something we basically say that to the extent that there used to be this real trade off between 
you know, you could think of the Soviet Union again as sort of a great example. Like you can either feed the farmers or you can take their food and then sell it to the Germans so you can build them factory, right? I mean, that's like a very simple way of, of articulating. And that was essentially true for the vast majority of human history. And it doesn't seem like it's true now. And there are a lot of, th- you can point to inflation indicators, you can point to financial market indicators, commodity prices relative to, you know, incomes, all sorts of things. I don't think it's that scarcity has literally been solved in the sense, you know, we don't have replicators that can just create, you know, things out of, out of nothing. But I do think it's, it, I mean, it seems pretty clear that we've been living so far below mm-hmm. our means collectively that there's a lot of room to expand without having to worry about things. I mean, I guess it's an interesting question. People also talk about the ecological, ecological limits. And I think that's a very fair question to ask. I mean, I think that's also, I think to be fair that if you had different sort of technological innovations, you might be able to get around that. I, it does seem that there's clearly a lot of sort of unused potential. I mean, one of the one of the indicators I like to look at is, you know, the capacity utilization rate of the U.S. manufacturing sector, which is something that the Federal Reserve has been tracking since the 1940s, and it just trends down over time pretty consistently. I mean, obviously, it's like sharp drops during recessions and it sort of rebounds, but there's still a pretty sustained downward trend. And so, even before you know the coronavirus messed everything up, I mean, it's a situation where like 25% of U.S. industrial capacity was just sitting idle, wow. mm-hmm. compared to 12% in sort of the 1950s, and so. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, this isn't because capacity has increased a lot over time. I mean, it did increase for a while, but then you get to like 2000 and basically it's been flat. I mean, there's some issues with measuring semiconductors if you want to get very technical, but essentially <laughs> like there's not, you know, there's clearly a lot of slack there. And then you can see this in other countries as well to varying degrees. So yeah, I mean, I do think it's it's sort of fascinating that we've gotten into a world where a lot of the constraints we thought we had don't seem to be nearly as binding as they were, but there hasn't really been a shift in people's attitudes towards mm-hmm. that. And so I do think there's a lot of sort of political, well, certainly economic space for a different kind mm-hmm. of politics to sort of take advantage of that. Right. Yeah. And I mean, just to like put a fine point on it, that means if we have all this capacity sitting around, that essentially means that we can have a free lunch for a while that like we can literally just increase our incomes and we already have the capacity to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think that, you know, I mean, the phrase, you know, people say there's no such thing as a free lunch, but you can also leave money on the table. And so I think that's sort of like a way to think about that. Like you just, yeah. You, you could have done more. You're just choosing not to. And that's that's waste, That's that's at least as wasteful as, you know, buying something you didn't need. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so the other part of that, that Keynesian prediction about, um, you know, the economic mm-hmm. possibilities for our grandchildren that would uh, create scarcity or create an end to scarcity. I mean, if, if not through replicators, then at least like a minimal conquest of bread um, was that he predicted lower working hours for most of humanity. And he said that the economic questions having finally been solved, we'll have to really face our existential questions, which is how to live well, how to actually like, you know, um, get rid of the old Adam in our breast and actually just like use our free time to be happy. But that, I mean, but that doesn't happen. So, I mean, at the same time that his, his correct, his prediction has been borne out in a lot of ways for the, all the indicators that you brought up, the, the labor politics of it just hasn't really worked out in the way that he predicted. Is, is, is that just a generational thing that we have to get rid of this sort of like, I don't know, like uh, the Protestant work ethic that a lot of boomers still have, or is it is it like a more structural feature of capitalism that like requires um, capitalists to dominate labor in order to, you know, exploit them or something like this? I don't know if I would go with either one of those necessarily. I mean, I would definitely say it's not a Protestant work ethic thing because you see it in a variety of different societies, including ones that are not at all Protestant. So, <laughs> I mean, the other thing too, which is interesting about in terms of the wrongness of Keynes's prediction there is it's not just that we saw working hours not go up or not go down, excuse me. But actually, you know, if you think about the entrance of women into the paid labor force, working hours went up tremendously. <laughs> like the share of people who are actually working in the market getting paid is much, much higher. And that's arguably a big part of the reason why we have so much spare capacity now is because of that. Not, you know, not just women, but like a lot of other people as well. And so being in part of the formal labor force. And so that clearly, that's essentially I think, the opposite of what, what Keynes said. You know, you're why? I mean, one thing that's interesting, and you know, we're talking about this, and I mentioned the inflation data. If you look at, you know, what's behind, you know, inflation in whether it's the U.S. or, or elsewhere, it's there. There is it really is there, and it really does exist. But it's mostly in a, in, it's in a handful of sectors where you see sort of constraints, politically imposed constraints on supply, coupled with large politically driven subsidies for demand. So things like housing, things like healthcare, things like education, that I think is a arguably an offsetting force or has been an offsetting force for like why people would want to work less. So as long as it's difficult, as long as you have to work really hard to afford a place to live, for example, or as long as you have sort of credentialism inflation where you have to more and more 
educational degrees are necessary to work jobs that may or may not require them. And then the cost of getting those things keeps going up. Again, is that an inherent feature of capitalism? I don't I don't have a view on that. I don't see why it would be, but um, you know, I'm sure some people would say that it is, but um, I, I think that that explains, I think a lot of the issues. And so, you know, that I think is a big part of the problem and, and fixing that would be, you know, also was one of those things where, you know, we mentioned the advanced economies, you know, you don't really see a lot of demand for investment anymore or like useful investment because, you know, why would businesses invest if there isn't strong growth in their customer base but there, there are some useful investments that could be made, but there, again, there's sort of political limits on, like, you know, housing is one, you can talk about infrastructure, both in the US and Europe and elsewhere. I mean, that, but that, that's where it gets into sort of the, the politics issue. And, and that's where it gets interesting. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating question. And I think that Keynes's prediction being sort of half right, and half very wrong is, is a definitely a very interesting problem that, you know, <laughs> many people could explore a lot more <laughs> fully. I guess I have one more. This is, more me just like making sure I have the, the books argument in my head head right. And and again, thinking about the US. So you describe how like for the for the surplus countries, there are unilateral actions that I mean, we talked about this before, they can do things unilaterally that will help rebalance things. Whereas the the deficit countries like the United States aren't really able to do that as well. But I, I was also just curious, could it be could you imagine a, a situation where the US essentially just says like, I, and I think this would just mean accepting a, a long-term current account deficit or something. But we just say, like, we accept it. We're the world's reserve currency. That means there's so much demand for our dollars, you know, in excess of what we're exporting. And as a result, we're going to be consuming more than we're producing. On the face of it, consuming more than you're producing, like, doesn't actually sound that bad from a, like, lived experience day to day, right? Because you're, you know, able to have a higher standard of living than you're earning in the labor market or whatever. Um, like, could you imagine just like saying, like, we're going to do that. And that's, you know, that's going to be our exorbitant privilege again, is that like, we just permanently get to consume more than we produce, because we're the reserve currency? Um, or are there eventually things that unbalance that system? This is sort of like the MMT view of the US economy, right, where every every burden that we incur is essentially politically self-imposed. And if we get those obstacles out of the way, the U.S. Yeah, yeah, I know. I yeah. think that's a really good and interesting question, and and I think there's a couple of points. I mean, one. So I know Michael has a lot of views on this, and I'm not entire. I don't want to like misrepresent his views, but I think one point he's made a lot, which is I think is very interesting, is that the stock of debt, in and of itself, once it gets to a certain point, can affect people's perceptions and behavior in ways that can be counterproductive. So there are sort of potentially long-term costs. I'm not going to go more in detail because I don't want to, you know, misrepresent his argument. But it's an interesting argument that he's made, and I think it's you know, worth considering. Other side of things, though, you know, to your question is like, yes, I mean, it's probably the best option that we could have. It would require a very different set of U.S. political political economic consensus to make it work, though. Is, is sort of the challenge because you sort of have to be. I mean, I, we mentioned this at the end of the book. Like, could have a world where, okay, there's just going to be the persistent demand for U.S. financial assets way in excess of U.S demand for foreign assets. So someone has to do it, right? <laughs> but we've seen what happens when it's not the federal government and mm. that's very bad. And so then the question is, okay, what do you, you basically have to have the federal government consistently run by people who understand this and that are essentially having budget deficits way in excess of what you might think would be normal or necessary in order to meet this foreign demand and to ensure sort of the financial stability of the private sector. And then you know, the commensurate thing, which getting to your point is consuming more than you produce is fine <laughs> if A, you know, there's sort of a guaranteed flow of money that's supporting that. And B, it's not coming at the expense of your own production. <laughs> and so that's the other thing, which is like in the past, we've seen this in the US and it happened, it, you know, it's actually been quite a long time where consuming more than you produce has been a function of, you know, production going down and down and down, which is not good. <laughs> and that's obviously intolerable for a lot of people, I think rightly so. And there are probably all sorts of other you can make a whole bunch of arguments why that's bad. Mm -hmm. And so if to make what you're talking about work, you'd have to have a political economy that says, A, we're going to make sure that we sustain our domestic production sector, making the kinds of things that we want to be making and, and so forth, and making sure domestic demand for domestic made stuff mm -hmm. offsets whatever is going on in the rest of the world. And you have this element of, okay, we recognize that we're just going to be borrowing a lot you know, <laughs> to meet foreign demand. And that's a tricky... I mean, it could be doable. It might be more doable than you know getting other people to change what they're doing. I don't know, but it's a it's a tricky mix to sustain and and to well, it's a tricky mix to develop and then to sustain. And so that that's sort of the challenge. 
I guess this this would also be in line with um so you said you know the government would have to be run by people who are have a strong Keynesian bent if if this is going to take off. Um I guess the other option would be something like a neo reconstruction finance corporation, you know, sort of an independent uh, investment authority that just like I don't know, like takes profits from the Fed or you know whatever uh, we make off of our exorbitant privilege and that they, they plows that into roads and bridges and schools and hospitals and whatever. I mean, Jakob Fagan has been has been really pushing this on. Right. It's, yeah, he's been talking. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you could argue that's kind of what Fannie and Freddie, you know, they were fulfilling a role kind of like that in the financial system for a brief mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it didn't work out as well as it <laughs> could have. Yeah, you could have something like that as well, like off the federal government balance off of the federal government's balance sheet if that were a concern but because that would that would then you know um presumably the neo rfc could then also issue safe assets uh, or safe right that that would be yeah it wouldn't be worth doing if that weren't the the case i mean the the trick there of course is then like do you want to have your infrastructure investment dependent on sort of what foreign investors are willing to be doing but that's a whole other yeah, I mean, there there are a variety of sort of tweaks you could make. I mean, one thing we also suggest briefly at the end is, you know, to the extent that there is some sort of precautionary saving involved by governments mm-hmm. and their ability to access dollars or other sort of institutions abroad, if the Fed and the IMF were directed or changed their pro- policies in such a way that there wasn't as much fear and as much need to have that precautionary savings, and maybe that would help. I don't think it's sufficient, but like, you know, might help reduce foreign demand a little bit for things like that. I mean, there are other countries where, you know, you see a financial crisis and it turns out, oh, you know, various entities in our country borrow in dollars. Our banking system has some connection to the dollar system. So we want to have some dollars that we can, you know, our central bank can then lend in emergencies. So then they buy it. And that's sort of independent from any explicit exchange rate management regime, maybe. And so the extent that you can, they don't have to actually buy the assets. They can just have a guarantee. I mean, that's sort of, you know, what lender of last resort is supposed to do, right? I mean, the whole original reason those things were created not original, but like the, the the reason those things are considered to be valuable as a lender of last resort is that you know it frees up balance sheet space for you know people to not be holding on to safe stuff. They can hold on other things because they know they can borrow the safe stuff if they need it. So I mean, you know, if, if the IMF and Fed thought about things like that, it might again, I don't know how much of an impact that would have versus everything else, but it can't hurt. And then the the place that you kind of ended the book is I guess not a not a, a new Bretton Woods because the old Bretton Woods was such trash, but like a, a next Bretton Woods, right? Mm-hmm. Like a going back to Keynes's actual original vision of providing an international clearing bank so that these surpluses and deficits don't get pushed onto each other, but onto this international institution, which then has mechanisms to to rearrange it, right? Yeah, I mean that sort of flows on again. If you're going to be thinking even bigger picture than the stuff we've just been talking about, then that would be sort of a natural point to go. Does why even have a lot of people yeah i wouldn't use that particular term okay uh, (laughs) Okay, um, yeah yeah i mean it's essentially like you know people people hold you know certain kind you know whether it's t-bills or you know deposits in u.s banks or whatever like that you know you could instead just have this other sort of neutral only for international trade currency and the extent that Mm -hmm. you know there's been a lot of research actually uh you know gita gopanath who's now the chief economist the imf i mean she made her name in part by doing research on showing how a lot of you know, just companies in various countries want to hold dollars because their trade is invoice in dollars. Mm-hmm. And so the extent that they don't need to do that, I mean, that's like a natural source of dollar demand. There's nothing to do with the inherent sort of, I mean, that, that shouldn't have to happen. So the extent that there's this other currency instead that like this, that that's not tied to sort of the domestic financial conditions of any particular country, then that would be good for everyone. They could just you know, transact and things like that. And then, you know, there'd be less sort of negative consequences for the U.S. and for everyone else. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you for your time, Matt. It's been... Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, that's um... great. Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Nick Johnson, with assistance from researchers Jackson Overpeck, Sophie Stuckenberg, and Rohan Venkat. The podcast is supported financially by the University of Chicago Program for Professional Advancement and Training for Humanists and Humanistic Social Scientists, the Micro Metcalf Internship Program, as well as the University of Michigan UROP Program. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review, which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at revivinggrowthkeynesianism.org. There you can also find our Patreon. 
we would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.